Father, we thank you for this wonderful day. We ask that your light would shine through the darkness. And just as water causes cleansing and things to grow and bear fruit, we pray that as we open your word, you would pour out your Holy Spirit in our lives, causing us to have faith and align with you and the purposes you created and redeemed us to enjoy. Come Holy Spirit, we welcome you to minister to us profoundly in this story. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. So you remember last week, Britt shared the story of Nicodemus and, uh, and continued that story of God's love. Remember, God so loved the world. God loves everybody. He loves everybody. And it's why John juxtaposes the story of Nicodemus with the story of the woman at the well. So just as John shared the story of Nicodemus, a highly regarded Jewish leader and scholar who seeks Jesus at night to protect his reputation, now he shares the story of a woman at a well, a no-named Samaritan woman of ill repute who seeks Jesus in broad daylight because she has no reputation. It's a striking contrast. The two couldn't be more different. But they have one thing in common, don't they? They both need Jesus. So if you open your Bibles to John chapter 4 in your blue Bibles, that's on page 888. I also want to encourage you to open up your journal. And if you don't have a journal, there are extra journals back there on the Bible cart. Really want to encourage you to continue to read, write, mark, learn, inwardly digest the Word of God and to begin to apply that and work that out, not only here and now, but throughout the rest of this week. So this morning, we encounter uh, a Samaritan woman. And she's been looking for significance. She's been lusting after acceptance. She's been longing for love, but settling for an illusion for it. And then one day, love comes to town. Love shows up. Love speaks. And she comes face to face with what she's always wanted, but could never find on her own. You know that longing, don't you? We all have it. It's a deep discontent in our soul. 
It's a nagging feeling of unhappiness that never goes away. Nothing satiates it. Nothing satisfies it. It's what makes St. Augustine pray. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. This morning is the story of what happens when Jesus shows up. What happens when Jesus speaks? What happens when Jesus satisfies our thirst to know God and to be fully accepted by him? This morning tells the story of what happens when love comes to town. Look at verses 3 through 4. This is uh, the cultural backdrop of the story. And the cultural backdrop of the story is avoidance and criticism. Okay? Does anybody avoid conflict? Do you ever become critical of people who differ from you? Okay, this is our story. Samaritans are partly Jewish, partly Gentile. And if you want to look at this later this week, in 2 Kings chapter 17, we learn the king of Assyria conquers and settles in Samaria around 722 B.C. And uh, three things happen when the Assyrians populate the land. Three things happen over time. The Assyrians and the Jews intermarry. They create their own version of the scriptures, and they build their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And so the Jews become critical of the Samaritans. They reject them as spiritually unclean theological heretics. And they avoid them. They avoid being defiled by them. Jews never travel through Samaria. They always go around it. And it raises our first journaling question for the week. Who are you critical of? The people who are different from you? The people who disagree with you? Who do you avoid? The people you misunderstand or who misunderstand you? The people who are hard to love? But Jesus isn't like that. Jesus doesn't condemn people. Jesus doesn't avoid people. Jesus pursues people. He pursues people to forgive us. He pursues us to heal us. He pursues us to set us free because he so loves everybody. And that's why Jesus leaves Judea and departs for Galilee and does what's unconventional. He does what's unthinkable. He goes to the defiled, rebellious, theologically incorrect, self-centered Samaritans. Right into the heart of this forsaken land 
right into the heart of this forsaken people, love comes to town. Look at verses five through nine. Jesus goes to save a people that most people think are unsavable and begins with one woman who everybody else discounts. It's noon. He's tired from walking all morning. He's hot. He's thirsty. He needs to rest. And just outside the village of Sychar, Jesus comes to a well. He knows it. You might say he knows it well. It's the well Jacob gave to Joseph. And so for Jesus, it's like returning to a familiar place from long ago. And so he stops and he sits down and then he sends his disciples into town to get some lunch. And for a few moments, Jesus is alone. That must have been a great moment for Jesus. And he wipes the sweat from his brow. He spends a quiet moment catching his breath. And then he thinks about that fresh, cold water in the well. Mm. Well, normally... Women come to draw water in the morning or in the evening when there is no sun and it's cooler. But not this woman. She comes in the middle of the day. She comes when no one else will be there. She comes when no one else will criticize her and condemn her. She comes when she can avoid the reality of her sin and the pain that it's caused her and the pain that it's caused others. She, she comes when she can be by herself, usually. But this isn't a usual day. This is an extraordinary day. And as she comes to the well, she discovers that she's not alone. Jesus is there. And he looks at her. More than that, he sees her. And he does what's unthinkable. He takes the initiative and he starts a conversation. It's completely inappropriate. Jews don't relate with Samaritans. Men don't speak to women. This is absolutely spiritually scandalous in his day. But Jesus breaks the rules. Why does Jesus break the rules? Because they're not his rules. They're human rules. So don't miss this. Jesus breaks human rules in order to heal broken people. He breaks human rules that his rule, his reign, can come to bear on those who cannot have it without him. It's what happens. 
when love comes to town. Jesus says, will you give me a drink? He asks the woman to serve him. He invites her to help him with his physical need. I'm so thirsty. Would you please share some of that water? Well, the woman becomes immediately defensive. She doesn't want to speak with him. She's already broken the rules. She can't handle any more condemnation. She can't bear any more shame. She's suffered enough already. Why is he talking with me? Think about that. You realize how good Jesus is? You realize how great it is that he pursues us despite us, regardless of us, because he so loves us. It's a good thing that he comes after us with his persistent love because if we were left to ourselves, we'd become critical of Jesus and we'd walk away from the well. But Jesus doesn't leave us to ourselves. He comes to us. He asks the first question. He initiates the conversation for the sake of relationship. He does whatever it takes to break through to our hearts. Why? That we might see him for who he truly is. That we might behold his glory and that in him we might have life. That's the testimony. And that's what happens when love comes to town. Look at verses 10 through 15. Jesus offers the woman living water. Now, this must bring to her mind images of a flowing stream. That's what living water is. It's moving. But there's only a well. There's not a river. And so she's not only defensive, she's also perplexed. Now, will you wonder with me for a second? I wonder. Is this woman's heart beginning to awaken to the possibility that Jesus is talking about something else? Something different, something better. Because this woman has some understanding of God and of his story and of his word. And so often in the scripture, God is pictured as the one who can alone supply living water to satisfy the spiritual thirst within us. David writes, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go to meet with God? Isaiah writes, With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And in that day, you will say, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. And through Jeremiah, God declares, 
my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And so I wonder, I wonder if the connection is beginning to happen supernaturally in her heart at this moment. When in verse 10, Jesus says, if you only knew the gift of God, if you only knew the gift God has for you and to whom you're speaking, you'd ask me and I would give you living water. When did love come to town for you? For me, it was after my senior year in high school and before my first year in college. I was in a very low place. There was a lot of difficult and dark things going on for me as an 18-year-old. And it's the first time in July of 1989 where I spoke out loud to God. And I spoke out loud to God and I said, God, I've got more allowance than all of my friends, and yet money isn't satisfying the longing in my soul. I'm the captain of the baseball team. I'm the captain of the basketball team. But you know what? That position isn't satisfying my heart. I've got the fastest car in the parking lot. I did. I saw it my satisfaction and acceptance in girlfriends. And yet, every girl that I dated betrayed me and broke up with me and started dating a childhood friend. And I, I said, God, I keep putting my trust in money and position and influence in people. And yet, time and time again, I keep getting hurt. God, I believe that you love me. Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins and I believe that I'm going to heaven, but I do not feel your presence with me here and now. And God, I want to experience your presence. So please, if you are who you say you are and you do what you say you do, come and be with me now. And love came to town that night. And for the first time in my life, I experienced the love of God and my tears changed to joy and I knew his presence, and it has never left me. And my life has been transformed for the good. Y'all, you can try to satisfy your soul with the things of this world, with grades, with money, with cars, with position, with relationships, but they will not ultimately satisfy you. The things of this world are like Chinese food for the soul. We pig out and stuff ourselves with them, and a few hours later, we're really hungry again. Only Jesus is able to satisfy the spiritual longing of our souls. And so the woman comes to a well, but Jesus invites her to a spring. 
She comes for physical water, but Jesus offers her spiritual water, and she contemplates, she ponders this moment. If she allows him to place the spring of living water within her, it will bubble up and satisfy her need for God forever. It'll change everything. This is Jesus's promise. It's what she's always wanted, but never been able to get on her own. Look at verse 15 through 18. She's not sure. She's not sure. She's been hurt so many times before. So many promises have been broken. She's weary. How could she possibly risk being betrayed and abandoned again? It's fear. It's the fear of disappointment. It's high. And so she hesitates. But Jesus doesn't. And he takes the conversation to a whole nother level. Jesus brings the velvet hammer. Go, call your husband, and then come back. The truth hits her heart hard. And immediately, she recalls her failure. She becomes overwhelmed with guilt. She's exposed again, full of shame. And yet, there's gentleness in Jesus' voice. Jesus confronts her sin with grace. And the blow is cushioned by his sincerity and love. Soft as velvet, he says, then come back. He's not abandoning her. He's not pushing her away. Jesus isn't being mean. He's making a point. He's not rejecting her. He's telling her that she must first acknowledge her sin. And only then can she receive what she needs from him. She must first confess her sin before he can purify her from all unrighteousness. She has to acknowledge the bad in his presence before he can take it and remove it and remember it no more and fill her with the good for eternity. I think she wants to leave. But in this moment, on this day, she stays. I have no husband. I think that's how she said it. I have no husband. I imagine she says it quietly and matter-of-factly. Exactly, Jesus says. You've had five husbands, and you're not even married to the guy you're sleeping with now. That's a moment. Face to face with Jesus. Look at verses 19 through 25. Nevertheless, she does what we so often do when we're confronted with sin. 
she tries to change the subject. She deflects the conversation by bringing up politics. Now that'll get it off of me and run it down the road, right? Where is it that we should worship, Jerusalem or Samaria? When that doesn't work, she defers the conversation. Well, I know Messiah's coming, the one who's called the Christ, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. It's really difficult to stand face to face in the presence of God, acknowledging our sin, waiting for the promise of his grace. And her sin is great. But you know what? Jesus' love is greater. Y'all, there's no avoiding our sin. There's no denying the pain and the disconnection that it causes us and other people. But when we come face to face with Jesus, something wonderful, something beautiful happens. It's what happens in verse 26. It's a game changer. It's a life changer. Jesus answers in one clear, simple, yet powerful statement. I'm the one. I'm the one. Now, some versions say, I who speak to you am he. Some versions say, I am he. That's been added kind of to the English translation. But in its original, Jesus says two words. He looks her in the eye and he speaks to her heart. I am. It's the title of the great Old Testament name for God, Jehovah. Jesus is using God's name. He's claiming to be God. He's identifying himself as Messiah. That's why I liked David's version this morning in the New Living Trans- Translation. I think it's most accurate, actually, in this case. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. This is the moment she's needed all of her life. She sees Jesus for who he truly is. She acknowledges him as the one who can do for her what she cannot do for herself. She beholds his glory. And the grace of Jesus fills her heart with forgiving, accepting, satisfying love. And the truth of Jesus sets her free from condemnation and guilt and shame. And the Holy Spirit floods her soul like a refreshing, gushing, overflowing spring. She's born again. Not because anything that she's done, but because love came to town. Because Jesus pursued her and Jesus saved her. Jesus doesn't condemn you. He pursues you. He convicts you so that he can forgive you. Jesus accepts you. 
in spite of all of your failures, in spite of all of your weaknesses, in spite of all of your imperfections, Jesus comes to give you a new heart and a fresh start. And then, as the Apostle Paul will write to the church in Philippi, he fills you with the satisfying spring of the Holy Spirit who is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. That's what happens when love comes to town. Now let's look at how she responds. She leaves her water jar at the well. I love that John includes this at the end of this testimony. She leaves her jar. I love it that John notices this and remembers it and wants us to hear it because it's a part of the story, an important part of the story. She comes for physical water. Jesus offers her spiritual water. And having found the living water of the Holy Spirit that satisfies her soul, she forgets why she came in the first place. It's the point of John's testimony. When we see Jesus for who he truly is, our lives are transformed. The old is gone. The new has come. Our identity changes. Our values change. Our priorities change. Our relationships change. And the things of this world we once held so dear become strangely insignificant compared to knowing Jesus and making him known. So how are you trying to fill your bucket? Are you seeking significance and success? Are you pursuing acceptance through relationships or sex? Are you looking for meaning in substances or images that bring addiction and are only fleeting, temporal, disordered satisfactions for who God created you and how he created you to be satisfied? Are you avoiding the problem in your heart by going around the problem or by being critical of somebody else? If you knew the gift of God that Jesus is offering you today, you'd ask and he'd give it to you. So as we come to the communion table this morning, we come to the true source of satisfaction. We come to surrender to his love. We come to invite and welcome his Holy Spirit within us. We come to ask what we can't buy, to seek what we can't otherwise find and to receive what we cannot gain or take. That's the invitation, that we might have life in his name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that we have filled our buckets with the things of this world that have left us empty and unsatisfied. And this morning we acknowledge our need for you. 
And we ask for your living water of the Holy Spirit. That we might have life in your name and become satisfied in you forever. So as we come to your table, Lord, please let your love come to town.